0: So the message today has five points, not, not all five are of equal length, so don't be surprised if some of them go longer and some of them go slower than the others, but our first point is that Jesus rose from the dead, verses 1 through 10. Jesus rose from the dead. It says in verse 1, Now on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene went to the tomb early, while it was still dark, and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. Then she ran and came to Simon Peter and the other disciples, whom Jesus loved, and said to them, They have taken away the Lord out of the tomb, and we do not know where they have laid him. You see, by the time we get to verse 20, the tombstone is already rolled away. Jesus has already risen from the dead. In this text, as well as in the crucifixion accounts, there's a similar style or similar pattern, which is it just very matter-of-factly states things without going into a lot of detail. Think about the crucifixion accounts. It doesn't give you all of the historical and medical and scientific and and graphic details. It just says something to the effect of, and so they crucified Jesus. Well, here in our text, he's already risen. By the time we get to verse one, the stone is already rolled away. It doesn't tell us in vivid detail what it was like for Jesus's eyes to open or for his heart to start beating, or for blood to start pulsing through his veins again, or for his body to literally pass through the linen cloak, uh, grave clothes that were, had wrapped him. It doesn't tell us about those things, but what instead it tells us is this account of these three people who visited his empty tomb. And these three people are Mary Magdalene, Peter, and John. So first we have Mary Magdalene and her focus, her her text is in verses 1 and 2 primarily, though she is mentioned throughout. So, the first day of the week, that is Sunday, which is also, by the way, the reason why we worship on the first day of the week, Sunday, instead of Saturday, is because of this whole resurrection situation. It literally changed the day of worship for the people of God. Now on the first day of the week Mary Magdalene went to the tomb early while it was still dark and saw that the tomb had been taken away from the stone the stone had been taken away from the tomb then she ran and came to Simon Peter and to the other disciple whom Jesus loved and said to them they have taken away the Lord out of the tomb and we do not know where they have laid him Who is Mary Magdalene If you've read the gospels much you know that the word Mary shows up a lot There's a lot of different Marys being mentioned Mary Magdalene is Mary from Magdala. That's a place. They've discovered the archaeological ruins in the last 10 years or so. It's one of the more recent finds in Israel. And it is very interesting because they found the synagogue there as well. And so, this is one of the few places where you know for sure that exactly here Jesus was. Because you know, when Jesus went to Magdala, he went to the synagogue. And the synagogue is only so big. It's smaller than this middle section of seats here. So you could, well, you can't because it's blocked off. But if you were to walk back and forth over the whole thing, you know for sure you walked where Jesus walked, as if that's going to help you in some way. But nevertheless, so Mary is Mary from Magdala. That's your clue to help distinguish her from the other Marys. This Mary is also the, the one whom Jesus cast seven demons out. That's mentioned in Luke 8. 2, which is in my footnotes, which are not in this formatted version of my notes. So Luke 8, 2 says, now it came to pass afterwards that he, verse 1, that he went through every city and village preaching and bringing the glad tidings of the kingdom of God and the 12 were with him. And certain women who had been healed of evil spirits and infirmities, Mary called Magdalene, out of whom had come seven demons, and Joanna, the wife of Herod's steward, and Susanna, and many others who provided for him from their sustenance. So Mary is one of the women who had been following Jesus. Mary is in this group, Mary, um, Joanna, Herod's, uh, the wife of Chuzza, Herod's steward. Uh, So Joanna is in this royal household, basically, and Susanna and many others who provided for him. So these are also women of means, because they are sponsoring Jesus. They are his uh, patrons. They're helping pay his bills. So you have a formerly demon-possessed wealthy woman who is Mary of Magdalene. She is not Jesus' wife. She is also not Mary of Bethany. Mary of Bethany is the prostitute, the one who anointed Jesus' feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. These are two different people. The tradition that those are the same person is a very old tradition. It goes back to, I think, Pope Gregory the Great in the 500s, but it's not accurate. These are two separate, two different Marys. Mary Magdalene also does not immediately understand what is going on. So who is Mary? Well, she's from Magdala. She is the woman who's with the other Marys. She is wealthy. She's a supporter of Jesus. She is not the former prostitute. She is not Mary of Bethany, but she is also confused. That's who else she is. She is looking at this situation and she is not understanding. She sees the empty tomb and instead of immediately thinking, oh, he's not here because he is risen. No, she's saying he's not here because... They stole his body, which is not quite the response that one would hope for. You would hope that like any person in the Bible or any hero or any figure that you're rooting for, that when they encounter a situation, they're making the right conclusions, but she's not making the right conclusion. She's saying they must have taken the body. She doesn't immediately conclude that he is risen. Our second figure is Peter. Peter is described in verses 3 through 7. Verse 3 says, Peter therefore went out and the other disciple and they were going to the tomb. So they both ran together, and the other disciple outran Peter and came to the tomb, and he stooped down and looking in, saw the linen cloth lying there, yet he did not go in. Then Simon Peter came, following him, went into the tomb, and he saw the linen cloth lying there and the handkerchief that had been around his head, not lying with the linen cloth, but folded together in place by itself. Then the other disciple came to the tomb first, went in also, and he saw and believed. So we have Peter. Peter is told by Mary about the empty tomb. Mary goes in. She's like, oh, the the tomb is empty. Turns around, runs back, tells Peter and John, Peter and John come running. But in addition to the many other things that we know about Peter from other texts of scripture, Peter is the fisherman. He's the brother of Andrew. Um, In this text, Peter is the one who's slower than John physically. It's a fun little detail. They're racing. And John beats him. And John, the one who wrote this book, says that he beat Peter. Peter is not only physically slower than John, he's also spiritually slower than John. And you see that in verse 8. Verse 8. The other disciple. So John is referring to himself as the other disciple. He's not saying himself by name. He's not. And I, like, he would feel pretentious writing that. So instead he's just saying, uh, the other disciple or the disciple whom Jesus loved, the other disciple who came to the tomb first. John has room for some pretentiousness, but not total. So he just, he keeps reminding you that he was there first, but he doesn't say his name. Went in also, and he, John, saw and believed. Why is he saying that? Because in this moment, Peter doesn't yet believe. So Peter not only is physically slower to the tomb, probably older, but that's not really an important detail. Peter's physically slower, but also spiritually slower. He's he's slow to believe. So you've got Mary who looks at the situation and just straight up is like, "Nah, he couldn't be risen. He must. They must have taken away his body." And then Peter looks at the situation and is. Possibly confused or something, but he's not immediately believing. And then you have John, the other disciple described in 8 through 10. The other disciple who came to the tomb first went in also, saw and believed. For as yet they did not know the scripture that he must rise again from the dead. Then the disciples went away again into their own homes. So John, younger, faster, John, the son of Zebedee, not John the Baptist, not Jesus' cousin who had long since been beheaded. Different John, not John the Baptist. He saw and he believed. And our text says they did not yet know the scripture that he must rise again. The idea that Jesus must rise from the dead is a prophecy of Christ, but it's not one that they were able to connect. It's not one that they immediately recognized. It's a prophecy that Jesus made about himself before it happened, but they didn't get it. They missed it, they didn't understand. But nevertheless, John saw the empty tomb and he believed. So this is point number one, Jesus rose from the dead. Point number two, Jesus appeared to Mary Magdalene. So you've got Jesus having already, um, having well Mary, Peter, and John described here in this first paragraph, this first section. But next is this particular appearance. Verse 11. But Mary stood outside by the tomb weeping, and as she went, she stooped down and looked into the tomb. Remember that up to this point, Mary hasn't actually gone inside the tomb. She hasn't even looked into the tomb. She just runs up to the tomb, sees that the doors rolled away, and concludes the body has been stolen. It has been moved. It's been taken away. Jesus is gone. But now in verse 11, she came back verse 10 says that she and the disciples had left they went away to their own homes but now verse 11 Mary has come back and is now standing outside the tomb weeping and then as she is weeping she bends down looks over looks into the tomb and she saw two angels in white sitting one at the head and the other at the feet where the body of Jesus had lain and they said to her woman why are you weeping She said to them, because they have taken away my Lord and I do not know where they have laid him. Now, when she had said this, she turned around and she saw Jesus standing there and did not know that it was Jesus. And Jesus said to her, woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? She said, "She, supposing him to be the gardener, said to him, sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him and I will take him away. Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned and said to him, Rabboni, which is to say teacher. Jesus said to her, do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to my father, but but go to my brethren and say to them that I am ascending to my father and your father and to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene came and told the disciples that she had seen the Lord and that he had spoken these things to her. So we see here that Mary has returned to the tomb after going home. Now, why would she do that? Why would she do that? Well, just in a very simplistic human reading of this, processing deep loss is not something that happens immediately. It no doubt took some time to sink in. The thoughts, he's gone. It's over. He's dead. I'll never see him again. For Mary, seeing Jesus on a near daily basis for some two to three years, becoming one of his major financial supporters and one of his most transformed disciples, going from one who had seven demons and then they're cast out and now she's helping bankroll his ministry, she and Jesus were close. And then seeing Jesus be tortured and die on a horrific cross, which is described in the previous chapter, John 19, verse 25. She is one of the ones there at the foot of the cross. That would have been absolutely heart-wrenching. And so as this shock is, is settling in and she's grappling with this reality that he's gone, it's over, he's dead, this doesn't just get over with in two days. Or three days. And then she goes to the tomb, and the tomb is empty. You see, she and the other women who are mentioned in other the other parallel passages, they had plans, and the plans were that, that the least they could do would be to give him a proper burial, to embalm the body, to honor him in his death, to have that sense of peace and that closure to say, this is it, we did the best we could, it's over, That was a nice run we had there for two, three years with this man named Jesus. But now that wound that was hopefully going to be wrapped up and sealed up is ripped open with the idea that the body has been lost or stolen or going to be used for other horrible purposes. So she comes back to the tomb It might be easy to criticize them for not understanding or remembering Jesus' promised resurrection, but his other 11 disciples didn't immediately understand either, and they were actually on the inside track. They were on the seminary track, and they didn't get it. You see, the next figure is our Lord himself, verse 15 through 17, Verse 14 says, now when she she said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing there and did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to her, woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? She, supposing him to be the gardener, said to him, sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him and I will take him away. This is a bit of a, a curious section that should raise questions in our minds, such as, how, how does she not know that it's Jesus? How, how could she not get that? Well, you have to take a couple steps back and for one, consider that Jesus is truly man. So that means his body is a real human body. So if you remember Just three days prior, when he is being tortured and brutalized so horrifically, one of the things that they do to him is they rip his beard out. And if you have been around people who have beards and then they shave their beards, they look very different after their beard is gone than beforehand. And also, if you consider that when Jesus was placed in the tomb, how was he clothed? He was clothed in these burial cloths. When he came out of the tomb, what did he do with his clothing? The burial cloths. He left them behind. This is a real man with a real human body who was wrapped in those clothes. So now what does he need to wear? Well, he needs to wear some other clothes. Now, where is he gonna, what kind of clothes is he gonna find in the garden? Well, he might find a gardener's outfit. Where might it have been? Well, it might have been in an empty tomb being stored there to stay dry. I don't know. This is speculation at this point. But we know that he found real clothes. And those real clothes he really put on, and those were the clothes of the gardener in the garden where he was raised. So you have him not in his normal attire, not in his normal rabbinic teaching attire, but instead in work clothes. Imagine, you know, you who know Alexis, if you see him wearing his, his work jumpsuit, I think you wear one, right? Like the blue outfit with the zipper on it. Yeah, that's very different from like a suit and tie or something. So Jesus looks very different than he normally does. His face is very different. His clothes are completely different. So, of course, it makes much more sense to see that a woman who is beside herself in tears undoubtedly has tears all in her eyes. It says in our text that she was weeping, not just misting up a little bit, but she was weeping. She hears footsteps, turns around, and sees a figure some distance off and doesn't immediately recognize him. Of course, she how would she immediately recognize him? Given all of these very real physical factors, Notice as well that Jesus calls her woman, and she did not recognize him. This is the same title that the angels said to her in verse 13. Then they said to her, woman, why are you weeping? Verse 15, Jesus said to her, woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? It is not until Jesus calls her by name in verse 16 when he says, Mary. That's when she recognizes that it was him. There's a certain way in which he says her name, a certain affection, a certain tenderness, a certain care. And when she hears his voice calling her name, she recognizes her master. She immediately runs to him and embraces him in the biggest hug. And you can see this, and you know this, because Jesus says, do not cling to me. Why would he say that? Because she was clinging to him. She was clearly holding him so tightly, saying things like, she's never going to let him go. I'll never let you out of my sight. This will never happen again. Don't worry, we'll take care of you. The other women are coming. We've got, we'll we'll fix you up. And he's gently peeling her arms off of him and saying, no, no, don't hold. There's more to be done. There is more yet to be done. Jesus says, do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to my father, but go to my brethren and say to them, I am ascending to my father and your father and to my God and your God. Jesus makes it clear that she will, in fact, let him out of her sight because he has to return back to the father but also saying that it is not yet that time. That time will come. He will ascend to his father, but it's not right this second. So you can just take a deep breath. We've got a few days. But you can also see in this whole exchange, Jesus' comfort for Mary in all of this. The language of my father and your father, my God and your God. He's assuring her and comforting her that, that his father, God the Father in heaven, is also her father. His God is also her God. And in that way, there is great assurance and great confidence, not just in this life, but in the life to come. And that's where real confidence and real comfort and real assurance is found, because it's not just about this life. This life is just a little dot on a very, very, very infinitely long line. And the age to come, you, Mary, will be taken care of. And in fact, you have the same father that I do. You're part of the same family that I am. You, Mary, are my sister. Now, our text goes on. Um, Jesus told Mary to go and to tell, go to my brethren and say to them, I am ascending to my father. Mary Magdalene came and told the disciples that she had seen the Lord and that he had spoken these things to her. See, Mary's testimony is the, the next thing mentioned in this passage. The ancient world was very different than the world in which we live today. The world in which we live today, a mere accusation from a woman is enough to take down virtually even the most powerful man in the world. <laughs> right now in um, SBC drama, we're not in the SBC, but if um, that's another thing. But anyway, um, Southern Baptist Convention, what is the difference between a credible accusation and a false accusation? Well, they say about five years. Um, There are all kinds of leaders who have been accused of various things and then you just give it a little bit of time and more facts come out and the truth comes out and eventually you realize like, well, there's more to the story than what you were first told. In the first century It was uh, the opposite of this and that is that according to the Jewish historian Josephus in Antiquities chapter 4, 219, a woman's testimony was not accepted in court at all. So to to tell Mary, hey, I need you to go testify to my disciples of my resurrection, that is a, a shocking thing. It is an incredible honor. Now, Those on the left half of the aisle would try to use this to say, well, see, you should have women preachers. That is not what's going on here. Whether you are, you could be the most conservative church in the world, they all have always held to the, the fact that women can witness of the gospel of Jesus Christ. They can tell other people that Jesus is alive and that he is risen. And that is what's happening here. Jesus is telling Mary to go tell the disciples that he's alive. This is an ancient version of a very ordinary thing that we should be doing, all of us today, whether male or female, we should all be proclaiming wherever we go that Jesus is alive. So this is Mary's testimony Our third point, Jesus appears to his disciples, verse 19 through 23. Verse 19 through 23. Then the same day, there's a lot going on in this one day, because remember, Mary came very early in the morning. That same day at evening, being the first day of the week, when the doors were shut where the disciples were assembled for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood in their midst and said to them, Peace be with you. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. And then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. So Jesus said to them again, peace to you. As the Father has sent me, I also send you. And when he had said this to them, he breathed on them and said to them, receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you retain the sins of any, they are retained. So Jesus is now appearing to the rest of his disciples. We have a Sunday night hideout. The disciples are hiding for fear of the Jewish leaders. Why is that? Well, the Jewish leaders are the ones who just had Jesus crucified. And if they can get him, if they can get their leader, then it'll be easy to get all these random no-name people. So they're hiding. They have very valid fear. Also, what, what is the size of this group? It is likely the 10 remaining disciples. Remember, there were 12, then Judas, so now we're down to 11, but we know that Thomas is not in this number, so there's 10. Jesus appears among them as well, even though the door was locked. Our text is very clear to, to point this out. The doors were shut where the disciples were assembled for fear of the Jews. But Jesus came and stood in the midst and said to them, peace be with you. This fact is described here as well as again later on in our text. It is a miraculous appearing of Jesus physically and bodily, yet he somehow passes through the door, through the walls. He appears among them. Jesus appeared among them through the door even though the door was locked in the same way that his body passed through the linen burial clothes. His physical and truly human body passed through the doors which were locked to keep their potential attackers out. Next, we see in verses 21 through 23, John's great commission. So Jesus said to them again, peace to you. As the Father has sent me, I also send you. When he said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you retain the sins of any, they are retained. This next section, I need you to hear me out, listen carefully, because there is a possibility of thinking that I'm sounding too Catholic. But if, out of fear of sound, of being too Catholic, we have often lost sight we've we often lost sight of the true apostolic authority that the apostles truly had. You see, the idea of apostolic succession and apostolic authority is what resulted in what we today call the Roman Catholic Church. We who are here today and not Catholic, which Lord willing is most all of us. We see that and we're like, okay, if they're doing that, then we want to be over here. We want to be as far the other way as possible. But what naturally often happens then is we lower the apostles down as though they're basically the same as us. And we lose sight of the idea that the apostles actually had real authority. And that real authority was significant. They could write scripture. You and I can't do that. They can heal the sick. We can't do that. The apostles had true apostolic authority, and Jesus gave it to them truly. Remember also where they were going to preach the good news of Jesus. These apostles are going out to preach the good news of the gospel, not in a region that has a First Baptist, a Second Baptist, a First Presbyterian, and a community church on every street corner. This is not the Bible Belt or even New York City. These apostles are going to preach the gospel not in regions that had hundreds of years of evangelical witness, but instead these apostles are going to the uttermost parts of the earth. They are going to places where they would be persecuted, where they would be tortured and where they would be killed. And so they're going to these places to preach the risen Christ among people who had never heard of him, but when they did hear of him, they hated him and hated them as well. And some of the people who hated them would be converted by the power of that same gospel. So, what do you say as a preacher of one of a team of people? What do you say to a murderous tribal leader who has killed half of your mission team before the Spirit of God opens his eyes to the message of Jesus Christ? What do you say to him after he is converted? What do you say to that ancient version of the Aka Indians who killed Jim Elliot and his band of brothers after they repent and believe the gospel? What do you say to those types of people? Well, you tell them, your sins are forgiven. While we do not bear direct apostolic authority to heal the sick, to raise the dead, or even to forgive sins, it would be good for those mature believers who have come to know something of the depths of the riches of the knowledge of Christ, to understand the role that we do play and the role that we do have, not only as spiritual midwives to help usher the newborn children of God into this world, but also as spiritual nursery workers or kindergarten teachers to help those little ones know that they are children of God and to know that they have been, in fact, forgiven. We don't have the authority to look at someone and tell them, I forgive you, therefore your sins are forgiven by God. We, we don't have that type of authority, but we do have the authority to preach the gospel to someone and to tell them, if you believe on the name of the only Son of God, your sins are forgiven. And I think that we're afraid of that. I think we're afraid of of going into some sort of uh, 1990s easy believism. We don't want to give false assurance to somebody, so we won't give any assurance to somebody. We won't tell someone, hey, Christ has paid for your sins. You're forgiven. But it would be good if we did. It would be good if we did have that category in our mind to understand the important role that we have in helping other believers in Jesus know that they have eternal life, to know that they are children of God, to know that their sins are forgiven. Have you ever considered your vital role, older saint, in the spiritual life of a newer believer? We might be Calvinists, but we're not hyper-Calvinists. We do not believe that people are robots. We do not believe that these things, if if it's ordained, it'll just happen on its own. No, we don't believe that. God has not only ordained the ends, but also the means to the ends. And the means to the ends is the proclamation of the gospel. It is the making disciples by the believers. So you, as an older believer, have a responsibility to help the newer believer understand the doctrines of salvation, to teach them, to help them understand the baptism, to understand assurance of salvation, to teach them and instruct them in sanctification. To teach them the doctrine of God, the attributes of God, the doctrine of creation, Christology, pneumatology, the doctrine of the Holy Spirit. To teach them about man in the doctrine of anthropology and to teach them about sin and homardiology as well as a bunch of other words that end in ology. My job as a pastor is not to do the entirety of the work of ministry but rather to equip you to do the work of the ministry. let me just say, before we move on from this point, that if you have never had the type of relationship with another believer where you can look to them and say, I have sinned. And they can look at you back and say, but Jesus died for sinners. And the comfort that that brings to your heart as a Christian We don't need to become Catholic, and we don't need to become Lutheran or Anglican either. But there is something to that when the book of James says to confess your sins one to another. And I'm not saying that you should confess things that are not involved with other people and just be airing your dirty laundry in in an awkward or improper way. But there are times where you can bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ, where you can speak words of life to one another. And that is such a blessing. Point four, Jesus is God, verse 24 through 29. Now Thomas called the twin, one of the 12 was not with them when Jesus came. So that's how we know he wasn't in the previous section. Thomas called the twin, one of the twelve was not with them when Jesus came. The other disciples therefore said to him, we have seen the Lord. So he said to them, unless I see in his hands the print of the nails and put my finger on the print of his nails and put my hand into his side, I will not believe. After eight days, his disciples were again inside and Thomas with them this time. Jesus came, the doors being shut, stood in their midst and he says, peace be to you. Then he said to Thomas, reach your finger here and look at my hands and reach your hand here and put it in my side. Do not be unbelieving, but believing. And Thomas answered and said to him, my Lord and my God. Jesus said to him, Thomas, because you have seen me and have believed, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen yet have believed. Thomas is famously called Doubting Thomas, and that's for a reason, because he doesn't believe. He was adamant about his unbelief. He was firm in his rejection. He was saying, no way, that did not happen. You're not fooling me on this. This might be around April Fool's Day. I'm not falling for that. But what happens? Well, eight days later... Jesus miraculously appears among them a second time and he shows himself to Thomas. He shows his hands and his side, the very things that Thomas had said. I'm not going to believe unless I see those things. Even that action, Jesus is proving his deity, proving his miraculous abilities, proving that these things are so in his action of saying what Thomas had said he wouldn't believe without seeing beforehand. And then Thomas confesses Jesus is God. My Lord and my God. This is not Thomas breaking the what, third commandment. This is not Thomas, well, he wouldn't be breaking the third commandment because he's actually using it appropriately. This is not Jesus just saying, oh my God. No, this is Jesus. This is Thomas looking at Jesus and proclaiming Jesus to be God. How do we know that? Because the next verse tells us, the next verse tells us, you saw me and you believed. Believed what? Believed that Jesus is God. God. That's this whole issue that's been a running theme throughout the chapter. And that is, Mary doesn't believe Jesus rose. Peter didn't believe that Jesus rose. John did. Thomas doesn't. But now Thomas does. And Thomas confesses that Jesus is God. So let me ask you, do you recognize that? do you confess that Jesus is God? Here on April 9th, 2023, do you recognize Jesus is God? It is entirely possible here in New York City to be a person who goes to church or to religious services on Sundays, but doesn't believe that Jesus is God. It happens all over New York City. Sometimes people go to church for social reasons, For financial reasons for moral purposes they think hey well you know i don't really believe but i I want my kids in church because a church a church upbringing is good for them i'm here to ask you do you believe that jesus is god If you believe that Jesus is God, and if you came in today, well, whether or not you came in today, but let's just say, if you came in today already believing that Jesus is God, there's a special blessing for you that's mentioned here in our text. So we have extra good news for you. Blessed are those who have not seen yet have believed. That would be each of us who are believers in Jesus. We haven't seen him with our eyes. It's still faith. It's not sight. There is a special blessing for those who have believed on the Lord Jesus Christ as God the Son, the second person of the Trinity, though we have not yet seen him face to face. This brings us into our fifth and final point. Verse 30 and 31. Believe in Jesus and you will live. Believe in Jesus and you will live. Verse 30 says, And truly Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. The purpose of this book is given right here in this text. The purpose of this book is that you would believe Believe in who? Believe in Jesus. Well, who's Jesus? Jesus the Christ. What does that mean? The Christ is the Messiah. And what more? Well, the Son of God. Not all religions have the same version of Jesus. Not all religions have the same version of Christ. But when we say Jesus, we mean Jesus, the Messiah, the one prophesied in the Old Testament, the Son of God, the second person of the Trinity. That's who we're talking about. That's who the Gospel of John is talking about. That's who the Bible is talking about. And that's the purpose of the writing of this book is that you would believe in Jesus, the Messiah, the Son of God. If you believe that, there are certain things that come as a result, one of which is described in this text. The result of this faith, the result of this belief is life. If you believe you have life, what is life? Well, life is eternal life. But this eternal life begins the moment you believe. So if you are a Christian today, you're believing in Jesus. Your eternal life has already begun. You've already begun that life which goes on forever. The air of heaven is already pulsing through your lungs. Not pulsing, but flowing. (laughs) The life of Christ is in you. His spirit is in you. Your eternal life has already begun. So I would ask you, do you believe? And if you do not believe, why not? Has Jesus called your name? Like he called Mary? She didn't recognize him until she heard his voice. This is what we would call in theological circles, the effectual call. The effectual call, there's a general call which I'm giving right now, a general call which is for anyone who, who hears the, the words, the message of the gospel, that's the general call. But the effectual call is when it becomes personal to you. When you hear Christ calling you specifically, where it goes from just flying over your head the way it's flying over my six month old son right now, he's just, he's, he's out of it. He doesn't recognize what is being said. But Lord willing, I trust that someday this message of the gospel will fall upon his ears and he will hear it in the same way when you say to him, Andrew, and he looks up his head. That's what happens with the effectual call. When Jesus looks out and he says, Andrew, and Andrew looks up. When Jesus said to Mary, Mary, and Mary looks up. That's what happened to each of you if you are a Christian. Jesus called you by name, you heard his voice, you looked, you believed, you lived, you have eternal life. So if you're here today, and you are not yet a Christian, I'm calling you to hear the voice of Jesus, calling you to himself to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and you shall be saved. What else are you looking for? Has Jesus called your name? Do you hear him calling your name even right now? Have you seen the risen Christ, not with your literal physical eyes, but with the eyes of faith? Have you seen that Jesus is alive? And then lastly, your faith might be small. You might be coming here saying, Andy, I know you had that rough situation with your backpack and your iPad, and now you're using your your phone to preach from and a Bible that's twice the size of your iPad. But my morning was worse than yours, and I'm just struggling to make it here, and I barely believe, but I'm hanging on. Your faith may be small, and your faith may be filled with doubt, yet it is still faith faith the size of a mustard seed mustard seeds are very very small we see in the life and ministry of our lord jesus that he said he doesn't quench the smoking f- flax he doesn't he doesn't put out that that candle that is just smoldering you know a birthday candle you blow it out and it still glows red Instead of putting his finger over that to quench it, instead, he gently stokes that flame to restore it. And that's what Jesus wants to do for you. If you're here today and you're struggling, you're saying, Pastor, my faith is weak. I'll say to you, we preach this message of the gospel week after week after week because it is by the power of the gospel, by the grace that is in Christ Jesus, that the weak are made strong that you're strengthened in Christ Jesus. It's in him that we walk and live. So I would call even you as well to believe in Jesus and you will live. Let's close with prayer. Lord God, we ask for the help of your spirit to apply these words to the hearts of your people to comfort those who are struggling to give faith to those who do not yet believe to restore those who are stumbling and have fallen and to save the lost Lord we thank you for this time to specifically consider and remember your resurrection. And we thank you that you, Lord Jesus, are alive today. And we pray these things in your name. Amen.